Welcome to UO Today. I'm Paul Pepys, Director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is seismologist Lucy Jones. She recently completed 33 years of federal service with the U.S. Geologic Survey, Geological Survey, sorry. Jones founded the Dr. Lucy Jones Center for Science and Society, which has a mission to foster the understanding and application of scientific information in the creation of more resilient communities. As part of the 2016-17 Humanities Series, the Oregon Humanities Center presented Jones' talk, The Fault Lies Not in Our Stars, Why Natural Disasters Become Human Catastrophes, at the University of Oregon on March 9, 2017. Her lecture was this year's Robert D. Clark Lecture in the Humanities. Thank you, Lucy, for coming on the show. Glad to be here. So let's just go back, way back in your life. So you have a bachelor's degree in Chinese language and literature. Yeah. So how'd you get there? to being a seismologist? Because uh, that's sort of a ruse. I entered Brown University as a physics major. Mm -hmm. uh, Brown doesn't have distribution requirements, so I got to do what I wanted. I started studying Chinese because my grandparents had been missionaries there, and my dad had been born and brought up in China. Mm. I had visited my aunt and uncle in Taiwan, so I started studying Chinese, and you either give up or become obsessed with Chinese. <laughs> it's not an easy endeavor, and I spent my junior year in Taipei studying Chinese. So when I came home and took my first geology class and realized that my real calling was a geophysicist, not a physicist, and I wanted to switch my major, it was easier to take the Chinese degree and then I didn't have to take advanced electrodynamics mm. and could take uh, structural geology instead. <laughs> so it's something of a ruse, but I do have a full degree and it uh, came to great use a few years later when I was uh, at MIT as a graduate student and this is the late 70s, China finally opened up. I was able to put in an um, application and was actually the first American scientist to work in China after normalization of relations and got to really use my Chinese <laughs> looking at what they were doing <laughs> with earthquake prediction. So tell us about the mission of the U.S. Geological Survey. W what's the mission and w can you give us a sense of the kind of work you did for them? Okay, the, the USGS uh, was a wonderful organization to work with. It's an amazing institution. Uh, it's the only federal agency with no regulatory responsibilities. Hmm. The job of the USGS is to provide the impartial science that the U.S. government needs to manage n the natural environment. So traditionally we were uh, geology, water, and mapping. Uh, uh, several decades ago, the biologists were added. So um, we were, you know, natural science and the public service. Mm -hmm. And my role was with the earthquake program. So uh, when I began, we were still talking about predicting earthquakes. Um, we managed to pretty clearly show that that probably was never going to happen. Um, I had one paper whose title was actually, are foreshocks main shocks that just happen to have big aftershocks? With the answer being yes. Um, you know, that we, the places we looked to predict weren't happening, they really were random. Um, but we do a lot of other things too. I worked on the seismic networks, helping develop uh, the monitoring and recording of earthquakes, uh, the development of earthquake early warning. And in the last decade, I was asked to lead something that was called the Multi-Hazards Demonstration Project to demonstrate how hazard science can improve a community's resilience to natural disasters, to start trying to bridge that interface between what we as scientists were doing in our corner, and we could see how information we had could make a huge difference, and yet we could see the policymakers weren't understanding it and weren't using it. So the Multi-Hazards Project was an effort to create scientific products that were more accessible to policymakers and work with them to understand how to use it. And 
you were so successful at this that the mayor of Los Angeles appointed you as his earthquake czar. Uh, yes. So what did you do for them? Well, this was a situation where we'd created a um, big scenario of what the big earthquake was going to be like, and you could see what the problems were. Mm -hmm. And people were like, wow, so we better, you know, prepare to respond. I went, how about preventing? Oh, no, no, we do response. And I went, okay, how are we going to get people to actually change these outcomes? I didn't mm -hmm. do all this just to suffer through it. Mm -hmm. And um, approached the mayor of Los Angeles, Mayor Garcetti, when he was first elected in 2013, and we discussed how to do this. I ended up... Uh, we signed an agreement, so I, I continued to work for the U.S. Geological Survey, mm -hmm. which was very important. The mayor got me for free, mm -hmm. and the price of getting me for free is he really got me. Mm -hmm. There wasn't a political constraint on what I was saying. Mm -hmm. So it was a risk that he took, uh, but it gave huge credibility to the project with the public. And I worked with his staff and, and other organizations across the city. I mean, the city of Los Angeles does have four million people. It's a pretty big organization. And uh, looking at where our big vulnerabilities were and what we could do to try and change the outcome. The end result was uh, 16 recommendations, all of which are being uh, implemented, which I find astonishing. I was like, you know, if half of this gets done, hmm. it'll be the biggest advance we've ever had. The mayor actually overheard me saying that at one point. He said, Lucy's saying half, I have to go for whole. Hmm. And he's, he's doing it. Hmm. Um, and so we are, you know, mandating people have to spend money to, to retrofit their buildings and make them stronger. The city's spending the money to fix up their water system so we still have water after the earthquake. Working with telecommunications companies to strengthen uh, the cell phone towers and how to increase our chances of getting through after the earthquake. So it's a, it's a broad ranging project that very much take my science, take their policy people, where are the places that it works? And then also to work at, reach out to the community. Mm -hmm. So in that 11 months that I spent at City Hall, I gave 130 public talks. <laughs> yeah, they call you the earthquake lady down there. Yeah, it's been known to, to be said. Um, <laughs> and I, you know, I talked with the Central Business Association, the Building Owners and Management Association, the Apartment Owners of Greater Los Angeles, uh, all of these different organizations and brought them into the decision-making process because you know one of the things come to learn is that if you people don't make decisions because you throw a lot of data at them mm -hmm. you need to help them understand how it applies to them and be part of the decision process so instead of going in and saying here's the problem here's what I think you should do about it I went and said here's the problem here's what it means for you Here's how you're not making any money after this earthquake. Mm -hmm. What do you think's worth doing so that this isn't the outcome? And um, a big other point was we didn't focus on the probability of the earthquake. The probability depends on the time. You give me enough time and it's certain. Mm -hmm. Let's just start there. We know it's going to happen eventually. Now what do we do about it? Mm -hmm. um. <laughs> so among other things, you developed the great shakeout earthquake drill. Tell us what that is and why that's an important thing for people to participate in. Okay, it began from that scenario I told you about. Mm -hmm. So we called it the shakeout scenario, and we created the drill the first year to um, help people understand what was in the scenario. We really intended it to be a one-time event. Hmm. Um, and we, when we looked at how do we get people to grasp this, you know, the social scientists told us people do things that they see other people doing. We need to make something visual. Hmm. We also then had actually a, about a magnitude five and a half in LA as we were preparing for this. Hmm. And nobody 
drop cover hold on under the table. Everybody was running outside. You know, we realized that, that the messaging was only happening in schools. Mm. Most people didn't go to school in LA. They came in from somewhere else or they'd forgotten. And okay, we need to do that. We put the two together. Watching people drop, you know, crawl under a table is a very visual way <laughs> of seeing people getting ready for an earthquake. Mm -hmm. So it was a combination of teaching people what the right thing to do was and making that visual compelling message that we need to take this seriously. Um, and then the other part we had to do was to let go of it. We realized, we, you know, who do we want involved? Mm -hmm. And somebody on the team was saying, I think we should aim for 200,000 people. And I was sort of joking, I think it should be 5 million. But then when we got talking, five million was one quarter of the population. And if we don't aim high, we're not gonna get there. Mm -hmm. Well, how do you get five million people to do something? You don't talk to them all. Mm -hmm. We had to figure out how to let go and give the message out to others that could then take it out. So we set up, uh, I created a, a presentation and I gave it to people who then went and gave it to others. Mm -hmm. And we went to every county and I was pretty tired that year, uh, just like the year in LA. But, um, the end result, we got five and a half million people registered to participate. We registered online. And um, when you get five million people to do something, other people take notice. And the state came to us and said, we want to do this again. We want to do this to the whole state. Mm -hmm. And my first, oh my God, over my dead body, <laughs> I've had enough. Other people have picked it up. I'm not actually uh, directly involved. Uh, and it's grown and grown and grown. So it goes on in Oregon now. And um, the reason to participate there's two things. One is making sure you go under a table in an earthquake is gonna keep you alive. Our instincts make us wanna run outside. It's a very dangerous thing to Why do. Why is that? There's a couple of things. One, running when strong shaking is going on is impossible. So we see people run outside and sprain their ankles and break their legs. And we have like 10,000 preventable injuries in the Northridge earthquake from people trying to run in the earthquake that ended up in the hospital because of this. So that's one reason. And the other is the outside of the building is probably the most dangerous place to be. Right? If it's gonna collapse, it's the outside where things are gonna be coming down on you. And when you go from here to there, you have to go through outside. Uh, and with modern construction, often your buildings are okay, so if you're in a newer building at least, um, but things fall down lights, you know, there's various other things. Going under a table prevents you from those flying objects. Um, so there's a lot of reasons why it's safer. And you're not going to do it without some muscle memory. Mm -hmm. right? So that's a really big piece of it. And then the other part is changing the level of awareness because you aren't going to act to reduce the losses until you believe the loss is real. Mm, okay. So can you give us a sense, you said, um, we know it's going to happen, we just don't know when. Right. So if I say to you, can you give us a sense of the likelihood that the big one will occur in the West Coast in the next 20 years, you're going to say to me, what? Uh, which big one? All right, so West Coast. So for each fault, we'll have a probability. Mm -hmm. In 20 years, the probability for the Southern San Andreas outside of LA is about 40%. Mm -hmm. It's about 2% per year. Mm -hmm. In Northern California, the San Andreas is less than 1% a year, but the Hayward Fault maybe is at least 1% a year. Um, up here, uh, it's a, the Cascadia subduction zone moves on average less frequently. The really big ones, the nines, only can happen every 500 years or so because just you've got plate tectonics has to build up enough stress on average. Mm -hmm. So you're, you know, that once every 500 years, a 0.2%. Now that any one of those, you can practically add those up. So chances are, we're probably at least at 50-50 
that one of those places along the West Coast is going to have a big earthquake in 20 years. <laughs> so um, when that happens, what happens? Okay, I can, I, I can describe what most easily for Southern California. I'll try and be as general as I can. Right? To be a big earthquake means that you're breaking a long section of fault. It's the length of the fault that determines the magnitude of the yeah. earthquake. So if it's the southern San Andreas that's 200 to 300 miles long, it's 7.8 to 8.2, depending on how much. The Cascadia subduction zone is so long, it could be up to magnitude 9. One thing that's important about that is the duration of the earthquake is directly proportional to the length of fault, because the rupture starts at a point, the epicenter, and it ri literally rips up the fault. And so the duration is however long it takes for that rupture front to travel the fault, and every point on the fault gives off shaking. So you can be 200 miles away from the epicenter and still on top of the earthquake. Mm -hmm. okay? mm -hmm. Now, that rupture speed is very well constrained at just about two miles a second. So for Cascadia, you're going to need about six minutes to break the whole fault. That means you're going to be perceiving some level of shaking for six minutes. Now, if it's coming at you from 400 miles away, it's going to be a pretty mild level of shaking. When it's coming at you from 20 miles away, it's going to be a very high level of shaking. So you're going to have this very long period, some of it being very difficult shaking. What's important about this, too, is that the long faults, the big earthquakes, involve a lot of people. Mm -hmm. you know, we, there's 13 million people, I believe, between Oregon and Washington that would be affected by a full Cascadia rupture. Um, the southern San Andreas, we have 20 million people that are near to the fault. And um, when you scale that many people, you overwhelm your emergency services. Mm -hmm. And part of our emergency management system in the United States, which is one of the best, probably the best in the world, depends upon mutual aid. That, you know, the first responder, your fire chief there, he can't cope with it, he calls for help. And it moves from him to the city. They're overwhelmed, they call to the state and the, or the county, and they go to the state, and eventually you ask for help from the feds. And the point being is that we, we survive the really big ones because we have all these other people we can pull on. Mm. And they always respond because they know that you'll do the same for them and the reverse. Now you have a really big earthquake. Your call for help is going to be responded to with a plea for help in return. Mm -hmm. They aren't going to be there to help you. We're going to need to be getting our help when the Cascadia happens. You're going to be hoping the San Franciscans can drive here quickly enough, mm -hmm. or the people are going to get in here from Spokane. Mm -hmm. You've got a long ways to go to get people in to help you that aren't themselves overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. And that's the key issue. A lot of people are going to be out, um, and you aren't going to have the resources, and it's just going to take a long time. Just that response period, just getting, getting people dug out of the rubble can be taking days just because it's going to be so hard to respond to such a large area. So what should we do? What are some of the things that cities and uh, communities can do to prepare to minimize the extent of the damage that will come? The first and most important thing, why we're doing the shakeout, is admit you got a problem. Right? <laughs> Americans aren't very good at that. Yeah, especially when it's a long time frame away. And so once you've acknowledged you have a problem, then I think you, then you get your community together and go, what's worth doing? And you do need some balance. I mean, it's easy to become obsessed to look at how bad it could be and to get out of proportion. And, um, you know, in general, flooding kills as many people as earthquakes 
in the United States causes as much damage. And we have a hard time taking it as seriously because it isn't as scary. Mm -hmm. You know, so you need to make sure you balance your risk. Or if you've got, you know, children that are dying because they aren't getting medical care, well, balance what the, your need is for improving your medical care to this long term. So it, each community has to make that decision themselves, but they've got to, you know, they've got to embrace the problem. Mm -hmm. uh, once you've embraced the problem, um, understanding that almost all earthquake damage is preventable. You might not choose to do it because it becomes too expensive or it becomes too inconvenient, mm -hmm. but the damage is not inevitable, absolutely. And there are, you know, so understanding what that damage is. One thing California did many years ago, back in the 30s, was prohibit the further building of unreinforced masonry buildings. They get called URMs, you know, brick buildings, where the brick is holding up the wall. Mm -hmm. I, I like to call them FPRs for future piles of rubble. Um, and those are by far the most dangerous. The retrofitting is well understood how you can at least keep the roof up, right? The walls are gonna come down because mm. mortar dissolves, but if you've put in steel beams and strapped the roof together, you keep the roof up. And it's the roof coming down that's usually killing people. So you can greatly minimize the risk. Mm. When Northridge happened in, Cal in Los Angeles in 1994, mm -hmm. Uh, this was 13 years after the city of Los Angeles had passed a, the first ever mandatory retrofit of unreinforced masonry. So we stopped building them in 1935, but there were plenty of old buildings around. Los Angeles had 10,000. <laughs> and they passed the law with a lot of screaming <laughs> that you had to retrofit or tear down your URM. And by the time of the Northridge earthquake, about over 2,000 had been torn down. The rest had been retrofitted. <laughs> Nobody died in a URM in the Northridge earthquake. Hmm. And that's astonishing. It was the first big California earthquake for which we could say that. So they really do work. And you know, if you're gonna be retrofitting your building anyway to modernize it, to put in new heating, you need to be putting in seismic uh, safety as well and recognizing just how much is at stake. So what are the, some of the obstacles to doing that retrofitting? I mean, you've, you've, you've mentioned mm -hmm. money. Money's a very big one. And I think that um, one of the reasons it's become such a big problem is because we treat it as though the problem is only the owners. Hmm. For an individual owner, retrofit or not retrofit, do I spend the money now, do I lose the building later? That's a trade-off because later might be long after you're dead. Right? It's not a clear choice as an individual. For a community, losing 10%, 20, 50, 100% of your downtown, the city of Christchurch just had to tear down their whole downtown. Mm. They don't have a city anymore. Mm -hmm. They are recovering because they have 95% insurance coverage. We don't have that. We'll lose it forever. So it's the community has much more at stake. And so I think the other thing we need to do is look at it as a community, embrace the idea of a common good and I think that's one of the things that Americans have been having trouble with. Uh, recognizing that the response and the preparation for earthquakes has to be seen as a community, as a group. What do we want our community and society to be? And what can individuals do? Individuals can do quite a bit in terms of protecting their own individual house. I, we've moved a few times. Every time we've bought a house in LA, the first thing we do is get a foundation specialist to check the foundation and make sure there's, you know, and, and we add whatever extra work needs to be done. It's never cost us more than $1,500, right? Very worthwhile investment. So protecting yourself that way, um, storing water, 
our water systems are probably the most vulnerable thing in this country. Uh, those would be t two things I'd say start with. Um, last year, I, I'm sure you were, are, are aware mm -hmm. that there was an article in the New Yorker about the imminent catastrophe of this earthquake, the big one that was going to come to the Pacific Northwest, and obviously lots of talk here in Oregon about this. Can you give us a sense of how the aftermath of a large quake in Oregon, what would be particularly unique about it and how it would be different from what, what would happen in Southern California? Um, well, uh, that article was great in raising awareness, and, and technically every piece of it was correct, but it was rather misleading by omission. It made it seem much more widespread. I've had people in Eugene, in Sacramento, asking me about their tsunami <laughs> damage, and it's like, you have to be under 50 feet elevation to have tsunami damage, hmm. you know, and often case that's two blocks, right? So, so there were some really unrealistic aspects that way. Um, one thing that will be really different is you really will have a tsunami. In Southern California, we're not going to have a tsunami because our faults are onshore. Mm -hmm. um, and the tsunami is really particularly dangerous. It's also something you can avoid. If you are at the beach or anywhere near the beach and you feel strong shaking, get to high ground. You know, the downside is you lose a day at the beach. The upside can easily be your life. Um, the other aspect is uh, Actually, the shaking will be less in Oregon than it will be in California because the fault's offshore. Mm -hmm. That means everybody's really quite a long distance away, and the shaking dies off pretty rapidly with distance. Mm. So the maximum shaking we expect anywhere on the, on the West Coast from that earthquake is probably going to cause less damage than what we had at the worst part of the Northridge earthquake. Mm -hmm. That was only a 6.7, mm. but it was directly underneath the city. So mm. everybody was right on top, and we had half a million people right on top. Um, and so, on the, uh, yeah, the flip side, you have older buildings, you have a lot of unretrofitted URMs. Mm -hmm. I would expect a lot of the unreinforced masonry buildings to either collapse or be badly damaged. And um, if you live in that sort of building or work in that sort of building, you really should practice your drop cover, hold on, because running outside is going to put you through that rain of bricks, hmm. and it's a very good way to kill yourself. Hmm. So Peter DeFazio, our ha House Representative, recently introduced a bill to fund an earthquake early warning system. What, are those good things? Do we, are those things well, that I we should have? I spent the last five years at the USGS working on helping um, uh, develop that system. It's a very simple concept. It's that the earthquakes produce waves on the fault, and those waves have to travel from the fault to you, and the rupture front has to move up the fault. So the earthquake takes two minutes to happen, if you're at the far end, you're getting two minutes warning of something that's going to be very, very bad. Um, and it's not telling you, you know, it's not predicting an earthquake. It's saying an earthquake is already underway and the shaking's on its way to you. And uh, such a system went, uh, was implemented in Japan in 2007. Mm -hmm. The ideas, the, the, a lot of the techniques were developed here in, in the U.S., mm -hmm. uh, especially at Caltech where I've been, um, but they got implemented there. They put, they put in the money to it. Um, and we've been able to see what use it is. So as an individual, uh, if you really are in that horrible URM and you're going to get 30 seconds warning, you might want to get outside if you've got a safe place to get to. Just remember, outside has a lot of things falling down too. Mm -hmm. Figure out ahead of time where you're going to go. Mm -hmm. um, there are, uh, there's a lot of fires that could be prevented by switching off gas lines or you know, stopping the, the transmission of gas lines across an active fault mm -hmm. uh, when the earthquake's coming through it. Um, uh, hospitals, get the surgeon to pull the knife out of your chest before the <laughs> his hand gets jerked. Move elevators to the nearest floor and open the doors so you aren't stuck in an elevator for the next week 
until the power gets back on. Mm -hmm. And so there's a, it's very clear that there's a lot of very practical things to do. Um, and in many of manufa manufacturing and stopping trains, that's the other really big one. A train moving at high speed will be derailed. A train that's at a stop just gets shifted back and forth. Mm. So um, uh, I can't imagine why we would even consider building a high speed rail without, without earthquake early warning. It's crazy. <laughs> so you're currently at work on a, on a big book, the big right. one, Natural Disasters That Have Shaped Society. Can you tell us what, what the project of that book is? I'm having so much fun. Uh, <laughs> moving beyond the science. So I'm, um, when we look at what's going to happen to society in, in these big catastrophes, uh, as a scientist, as an engineer, we can come up, we can make a list of all the damages. I can tell you where's going to be shaken, what's going to be broken. But the question really is what happens to our society? How much do we want to stay? You know, are you willing to stay when you haven't had a shower in a month? And if you, if you leave, will you ever come back? And what happens to those communities? And so it's a sort of, I've, my research has brought me to a different place in looking at how disasters and catastrophes affect the world. And that it's really tied into um, how, how our communities function. That the disasters are extreme events operating on an existing system. And the problems are going to be where we have problems already. You know, one of the, we, look, we studied the earthquake in LA and we determined that fires set off by the earthquake were one of our big problems. What do we have trouble with on an everyday basis? Mm -hmm. <laughs> fires and water, right? So um, what's going to happen to our society depends on where our society already is. And we, because we are so afraid of the random time, it is very hard for us to, to give up that when is it going to be and look at what it's going to be and what can we do about it. So I'm telling the stories of a series of natural disasters through the world and looking at how people's fear of randomness affected how they responded to it, how it affected our philosophy and religion, uh, but then also what, um, how it affected our ability to get ready or not and what a, a good recovery can do for a community. You have the right people with vision that lead the recovery, not the response to the earthquake, but building back afterwards. Mm. That's what makes a difference to a community. So I hope to inspire people that when the disasters happen, they, they invest in their communities and stay and rebuild. So we have just one minute left. I know that you're also very concerned about the problem of climate change. You've been an amazing spokesperson for earthquake science and dis disaster mitigation. Are you going to bring those same talents to speak to the public to the problem of climate change? I hope so. I, uh, you know, the, the core issue is believing in the value of science, believing that reality matters, that something happens not because you believe it to be true, but because it's real. And we can't address the problems we're facing in our society without accepting the fundamental nature of reality. On that very sobering but uh, persuasive point, I want to thank you, Lucy, for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you for having me here. It's been great. I've been speaking with former U.S. Geological Survey seismologist Lucy Jones, founder of the Dr. Lucy Jones Center for Science and Society. As part of the 2016-17 Humanities Series, the Oregon Humanities Center presented Jones' talk, The Fault Lies Not in Our Stars, Why Natural Disasters Become Human Catastrophes, at the University of Oregon on March 9, 2017. Her lecture was this year's Robert D. Clark Lecture in the Humanities. Thanks so much for watching. Thank you.